Please turn in your Bibles with us to Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are but a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Joe, and we don't know each other. Uh, And I only know Jeremiah from a uh, friendship cultivated over Zoom and phone calls. Uh, So, uh, my exposure to Crosspoint goes back several years uh, as uh, part of the Acts 29 network that uh, I planted a church as part of that network uh, up in Michigan some years ago. And uh, so I used to tell people that I was a church planter and a pastor and da 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 da. Well, my wife and I uh, have uh, had made the decision to step away from uh, that pastoral work. We believe that God was leading us away from that and in a, in a different direction here uh, about six months ago. And so now what I can say is that I am a child of God, loved by God, uh, a a husband to a wonderful wife, and joyfully a father of five boys. And I'm very thankful to be able to be here with you as we open God's Word this morning here in Psalm 62. Now for those of you who like to take notes, uh, the big idea as we work our way through uh, this uh, particular psalm is finding a refuge. It's just uh, pretty straightforward from uh, the direction of, of what David is talking about here, finding a refuge. Now, here about, uh, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, I was in Nashville for an Acts 29 uh, church planter assessment. And I uh, came out of the airport, I got into the lift and began dri- driving along. And the uh, man who was driving uh, began talking to me, had a very thick uh, uh, Arabic accent. And so I asked him, what brings you to Nashville? And he said, I want to stay alive. Okay, that's, there's a story behind that, uh, that statement there. And so I, I began to ask him uh, more detail about how it was that he ended up there and, and what, who, why did he uh, think that he would stay alive if he was in Nashville. And, and, and he began to relate the story to me of uh, meeting uh, some uh, U.S. troops in Afghan uh, and in Afghanistan. And as he uh, began working with them, he began to translate for them. And he did this work for some period of time until 
the troops were going to move out from his region. And it became very clear that the day that they left his region, his life would come to an end. And so he began to uh, pursue uh, the asylum and refugee status. And as you think about it, he didn't go to his neighbor and ask, will you let me take refuge in your house? Uh, He didn't uh, go to the next village and ask, can I take refuge in this village? He looked and he said, where is a place of power that can protect my life? And of course, moving to the other side of the world and living in Nashville uh, went some degree as he became a refugee in pursuit of preserving his life. And as I sat there and I listened to him, I thought to myself, and as I reflected upon it, I thought to myself, what he went through and the trouble that he faced that threatened his life, that led him to seek refugee status to protect his life is something that every single human faces at some point or another. That every person will encounter, every one of us in this room will encounter a moment of trouble when we seek protection. David reflects on the pursuit of refuge, the place of refuge, asking, pressing upon us the question, where will we find refuge? And we we see this as we begin to step into this psalm in these first couple of verses. Again, if you like taking notes, you could put this down as your first point. He's going to give a confession of the safest place. Look at what he writes there in Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. He says, For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Now we're going to return to these concepts in a minute, but for right now, I just want you to notice what's there. And what David is doing with poetic devices right here at the very beginning of this psalm. In the first line, he says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. He describes the condition, the confessional nature of a person who trusts in the Lord. He's describing that, and he's saying that that person is trusting in God alone from their most inward being. See that there? For God alone my soul waits. So he's waiting for God to act, and he's not taking the self-protection action, and he's doing this in silence. That's a word of calmness. We heard about that just a minute ago. We'll see that a few times throughout this, this place of of rest that, that comes through Jesus as we trust in the Lord. So this is the condition of his soul. And then if you look at the last line in verse two, he says, I shall not be greatly shaken. It's a similar idea, something that parallelism that takes place all throughout the Psalms. On the one hand, he says, he speaks of his soul in silence, and and the other, I will not be greatly shaken. But now look at what he does right in the middle. In lines two and three, he says, from him comes my salvation. At the end of verse one, at the beginning of verse two, he says, he alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. And what I want us to notice as we begin to step into this psalm of showing us the place of true refuge, of real safety. The safest place is the place that is centered. You see what he's doing poetically here? His stillness 
His hope is centered on these two middle lines that the Lord holds on to and gives him his salvation. He's like a rock. You remember David running away from Saul, David running from the Philistines? David knew about hiding in the rocks. David is saying, God is like the rock where I am safe. It's at that place that he surrounds me as a fortress and he saves me. So there's a confession that begins here. He's he's laying out the confessional condition of the person who trusts in the Lord. What's already happening here is he's setting up a a contrast that he's going to draw out later. He's setting up a contrast between the person who trusts in God alone and the person who will trust in something else. And I think as we begin to walk into the psalm, because we know, we just heard it read, and I've read it a few times here as uh, we've, we've come to this point, and we've already heard these concepts talked about, it's worth asking the question. And even if you are taking notes, to, if it comes to the front of your mind, even jotting it down, the answer to the question. When faced with trouble, he specifically will say attack here in just a minute. When faced with attack, when faced with trouble, Where do you look for safety? Just think about that for a moment. Where do you look for safety? Is it in the safest place? Or is it someplace else? If we're honest, we'll say sometimes both. Well, David here has begun with this confession, describing the state of a person who trusts in the Lord. He's our firm foundation and our protector, but we do not live in a tranquil world. We do not live in a still world. Trouble is real. Attacks will come. Which is where he turns in verses 3 and 4. As he begins to speak of hidden attacks. How long will... All of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Now, as this begins this section here, you look there in verse 3. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? And you see there in verse 4, they plan to thrust him down. It's like, oh, that seems pretty violent, right? Like, it looks like he's coming, whoever these attackers are, all these people are coming out to do very violent deeds. But then he, he nuances the attack, and he describes it a little bit more specifically at the end of verse 4. He says that they take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So it is an attack, but it's hidden by falsehood. The way that he speaks of this is that it's a, it's a pervasive kind of attack. You look at that little phrase there that he, that he has at the beginning of verse 3. He says, how long will all of you attack a man? Now, We don't know when he wrote this. David had a few times in his life where it seemed like everybody was out to get him. Saul and his army pursuing him through the countryside. Moments when he would find himself surrounded by thousands of Philistines trying to kill him. At one time, his 
son, Absalom, turned the people against him, wanting to dethrone him and pull him out of his high position. We don't know exactly what it was that was taking place here. But there were a lot of people who had turned their attention against him. It's a pervasive attack that has come against him. He's feeling the attack from every side. And it's worth asking the question, as we read these psalms, as we work our way through these psalms, these psalms are written out of a human experience of someone who knows the salvation and care of the Lord. And some of you now, or at some point previously in your life, you have found yourself in the position where it looked like there was a pervasiveness of, it felt like everyone was out to get you. And the Holy Spirit has given through David the gift of a psalm to cry out to the Lord in the midst of such circumstances when it feels like everyone has turned against me. But we want to notice that he doesn't, he doesn't clearly define this. He leaves it pretty general. Who are these people? We don't know exactly. There's just a lot of people. And, and as you think about this, it's really helpful for us because it provides the opportunity for us to begin thinking about this in the context of our lives. It, it could be in the context of of your workplace. It could be in the context of your family. Uh, it, it, feeling like, oh, my family's against me or my coworkers are against me. Maybe, maybe it's in the context of your friend group within your, within your schools. The Spirit has given you words to pray to the Lord in the midst of an attack. An attack is something that we will all face. It's fascinating the way that David puts this together. At first, he compares, in verse 3, he compares himself receiving the attack like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. Well, that's pretty weak. Uh, my, uh, my little patio fence recently, uh, the part of it, it just tipped. I think uh, maybe a child was climbing on it. But it just tipped. And it would do this. Every time the wind would blow, I'd just look out the window and go, oh, is this the storm? Is this the one that's going to take it down? It never fell. I eventually uh, fortified it. Is he being attacked in weakness? That could be. Now look at what they want to do, though. Verse 4. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. Well, that looks like strength. But consider the gift that the Spirit is giving to us as we work through this psalm. Are you in a place of weakness? Facing attack from every side, feeling like everyone is coming against you? Are you in a place of weakness? There's hope for you. The pathway that we're about ready to walk down to find refuge is for you. Are you in a place of strength, of leadership perhaps, that you feel like people are turning against you and, and falsehood is being spread? Manipulation is taking place. The Spirit has given you a gift. Those who trust in the Lord, whether they are in a place of weakness or a place of strength, the Spirit is inviting from both places to come to the refuge that is found in a power that is greater than you in Christ. And we see that these attacks are manipulative. Those who are attacking, they take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. And I think for us, as we read the Psalms, we didn't have time to go through all this this morning, but as we read the Psalms, we always want to view them through the new covenant lens that Christ has fulfilled, and we can, we can see things clearly that the psalmist couldn't see. 
because Christ hadn't yet come. He didn't yet have the new covenant. And so as we read this and we we begin to read of those who take pleasure in falsehood, who bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse, there is a direct line that Jesus draws between those embodied aspects of falsehood and the very work of the devil. He speaks in John 8, 44, speaking to those Religious leaders who oppose him, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And this is the religious leaders, the people who didn't trust in the Lord. This is the very nature that was within them. But the nature within them was a reflection of the father of lies. And for us, we we have to recognize that the pervasiveness of the directions that falsehood and attack can come from, they can be embodied. They can come through temptation to believe lies. It can come from all sorts of angles. There are many types of attacks that can come, that can come in this way. David is highlighting here the manipulative, maybe the passive-aggressive the slander and gossip sort of attacks that can come. And even as we come to this point and we see these sorts of attacks that come against the one who's like a leaning wall and a tottering fence, doesn't the contrast just begin to bubble up for us? The very opposite nature of our Savior in comparison to these sorts of attacks that bubble up from the devil himself, because the source of hope where David is about ready to take us is the Savior who spares a bruised reed, who is, as we just heard a few minutes ago, is gentle and lowly and able to give rest to those in need of rest rather than beating them down. Maybe today you are under these sorts of hidden attacks. Might be facing this in your workplace, someone trying to undermine you. Could be family members we've seen many times in our church planting experience, family members who turn against those who have believed the gospel and have been baptized. As you face these attacks, remember, there is a man the God-man, Jesus, who knows how to tenderly, tenderly, gently care for the bruised soul. He has strength enough, as we will see in a few moments, to carry and heal you, to speak words of truth, not falsehood, into your life. Now David is going to move from the attacks to give an answer, a pathway to the crippling effects of deceptive attacks. And what David is going to do is he's going to give us a pathway to the safest place. We see this in verses 5 through 10. He gives us here a pathway to protection. The first thing that he is going to do, and I think that it is appropriate for us to put it in these terms, he is going to call us to remember the gospel. 
It's the first thing he's going to do, to speak the gospel to ourselves. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself, remind yourself of the gospel, any of these sorts of phrases. This is exactly the direction that David is going to take us in verses 5 through 7. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Now, there's one, there, there are a few differences. He adds some highlighting terms in here. But there is a significant difference that takes place with just a, a couple word change right at the beginning. Back there in verse 1, he says, For God alone my soul waits. That's an indicative. That's the confessional thing. This is what's true. But now look at verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. The change is little, but it's significant because he goes from the indicative, this is what is, to the imperative. Soul, do the thing that you said you believed. This is where he begins to preach the gospel to himself. Now, I keep saying preaching the gospel, and you're like, well, Joe, I'm looking here, I see the words, I see salvation talked about, okay, that's there. It says it twice, so, okay, maybe that's where gospel comes from. Well, we want to remember that as David wrote, he wrote from a position of not fully seeing and knowing what would come in the new covenant, what would fully come in Christ, but we do. So we can see the passages that are developed out of the gospel, out of the work of Christ. And so we could turn to Colossians chapter 3, where we read a passage of refuge, where we find our hope fulfilled, the source of glory. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If you have a Bible there, you can, you can turn over to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And I just want to t- make note here of, of the, the parallel nature that is more clearly defined as focused on Christ. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Colossae. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Now, I want you to make note of the parallels between what David has to say in Psalm 62, verses 5 through 7, and what Paul says here in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. First, we are waiting We are waiting for something that is not yet in Colossians chapter 3. He tells us, he tells himself, and he tells us to wait in silence. But in Colossians chapter 3, we discover that we are waiting. We have been raised with Christ, but we are still seeking something. What are we seeking? We're seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seating at the right hand of God. We are setting our minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. These are the things that we have not yet fully laid hold of. Christ, who is our life, whom we have not yet, but will see face to face. We are waiting upon him. 
In the gospel, we are called to wait, and we must remind ourselves that we are waiting for the gift of seeing Christ face to face, of joining with him, with the Father, setting our minds upon those things. We are also trusting the salvation of the Lord. You see that in Psalm 62. He's reminding himself that God is his rock and his salvation, that on God rests his salvation. Well, what do we discover here in Colossians chapter 3? Verse 3, we have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We have died. How is it that we have died? We have died with Christ. When we have trusted Christ's work on the cross, we have said, I now die to Joe. Joe got nailed up to the cross with Jesus so that I am now united with him, which brings us to the refuge, the safe place, the safest place that through what Christ did on the cross, as we trust in him, we are then united into a place of refuge. He speaks of it here several times in these verses. He speaks of him as the rock, as the fortress. My refuge is God. But look at the way that Paul shines the light upon this place of refuge for us at the end of verse 3. We've died. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Brothers and sisters, you may not feel it every day. You may not even feel it most days right now. But if you have been united with Christ, you are in the rock. You are in the fortress. You are in the safest place. And what David is doing is he's saying, Oh my soul, remember where you are. You have trusted. You have found refuge. You are in the safest place. And brothers and sisters, if you have trusted Christ and have been united with Christ, whatever attacks you are facing, whatever you may face when you go home today or you go into the workplace this next week that is coming at you, you are in the safest place united with Christ. The waiting may be long, but the hope is sure. You are safe. He also speaks here of the glory. He says that on God rests my salvation and my glory. Paul shines the light again. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. David frequently speaks worldly nonsense. And what I mean by that is nonsense to the world. Here you have, look back up there in verse 4. He says they only plan. There are these people, this group of people planning to to throw him down. They're lying, they're conniving, they're manipulating. They plan to throw him down. It's time for David to get to work, right? It's time for him to start building up and fortifying and protecting. That's what he should. He keeps saying that he's waiting. That he's waiting in silence. That seems like nonsense. Do something, man. Protect yourself. David says, but I have a protector. 
And this is the question that begins to come out of David preaching the gospel to himself. Who's getting the glory here? Is it going to be me? Because of how well I swing my sling? Is it going to be me because of how well I swing my sword or command my army? Is that where the glory is going to come from? Or is the glory going to come because the Lord acts? Which is it going to be? Am I going to be a self-protector? Or is God going to be my protector? David is reminding himself to wait. That the Lord will protect him. Pathway marker number one. Pathway marker number two. As we preach the gospel, as we remind ourselves of the gospel, that we would remember to trust through prayer. Look at verse eight. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So David moves from preaching the gospel to himself to calling us into faith through prayer. Not just some nebulous faith, but faith through prayer. It is the expression of, the beginning of, the poetic parallelism device that's going on here. Trust, express the faith at all times, O people. How do you do that? How do you express faith? By pouring out your soul. Now, in my Bible, you can't see this, but this, out of all this, this is just that little line is underlined. And I remember the moment that I underlined it. I was walking down a path. The path went down like this. There's a fence right here. You walk around like this, and then you walk back to some woods that are back there. And there's a path in the woods where I would walk and pray for years and hours and hours. And we were coming out of COVID, and I had found out that my mom was not going to live much longer, and the church was just, it was hard pastoring in COVID and going through all these things, and I didn't know what to do, and I'd been in my psalm reading, and I just, that right there, I need to take all this churning, it's a word that Calvin uses to talk about this, the churning of the soul, and bring it out and give it. That's the expression of faith that he's talking about. And now some of you, the Lord has given you a gift that you can, at any time, bear your soul before the Lord. He did not give me that gift. So for me, faith in this prayer of faith started one step earlier. Lord, help me to pour out my soul because I can't put it into words. Give me the words to express faith by pouring out my soul. And maybe that's what needs to take place for you. Taking these Steps toward refuge of preaching the gospel to yourself. And maybe before you can get to the point of pouring out your soul, you just need to ask the Lord, help me. Give me the words that I may speak to you. And we remember, do we not, the hope that Peter speaks? As he reminds the church in 1 Peter chapter 5, he said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. How? Casting your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. When you pour out your soul to the Lord, you pour out to someone who loves you, who cares for you, who has rescued you and adopted you and 
given his son to pay the penalty for your sins so that you may be a son, a daughter. Take your soul to him. Draw near to the throne of grace and the glory of the Lord. As you face trouble and attacks, taking further steps into the refuge that has been purchased by Christ for you. And then finally, the last marker on this pathway toward refuge is to not turn around. Or we could say it this way, remember that you are not your own savior. Look at verses 9 and 10. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are altogether lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. This is a a, a way of, we could just summarize it in terms of saying, don't put your hope in power or money to be the safest place, to be your refuge, to be your rescue, to be your savior. Fill in the blank, to be that thing that comes to your aid and rescues you in time of trouble under the attack. Don't put your hope in power or money. But it's a little bit more nuanced than that. In verse 10, he's actually speaking to people who are in power. So you have the person in the high position that we saw back in verse 4. And the person who is in the lowly position. We could say the leaning wall and the tottering fence. Look at what he says there in verse 10. He says, put no trust in extortion. This is something that powerful people could do. They could work extortion in order to get more money, whether through taxation or some form of getting more money out of the populace, out of the people that they had power over. They could pull that off. And he was saying, listen, if you're in a place of power, don't think that if you use that power to get more money, it's going to make your troubles go away. I seem to recall... Another poem that had to do with more money, more problems. This is David's version of that. It's going to happen. So don't put your hope there if you have the power to get more money. And then if you're in a place where you have to steal to get more money, don't think that if you steal and get more money, you're going to be able to make your problems go away. So whether you have power or you have no power, whether you have high estate or you are of low estate, Getting more money is not going to solve the problem. And even if riches do increase through honest means, don't assume that they're going to make the trouble and attacks go away. They're not your safe place. So you see he's driving it in from multiple angles here, reminding us, don't turn around and run to another refuge, to another place of safety. And in verse 9, he's merely reminding us of the wispiness of human help. It doesn't stand. It doesn't stand as giving us an eternal hope. It doesn't stand as giving us a real refuge and fortress. The plain matter 
is that every person that you and I put our trust in outside of Jesus will die. Their protection will come to an end. Then what? It's gone. But when we trust Christ, we find an eternal protection, an eternal salvation that will never fail us. So don't turn around. Continue to remind yourself of the gospel that is true. Continue to pour out your heart before the Lord and press forward by faith. David concludes the psalm by telling us the reason why God alone is a savior, rock, fortress, source of hope, refuge, and glory. Look at verses 11 and 12. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that you, Lord, to you, Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. That little phrase there that begins verse 11, he's turning our attention to true power, love, and reward. He's telling us that there are two aspects to what he knows about God. First, God said it. God said that he has the power, that he is a God of steadfast love. He has read this in the Torah. But then he's also heard about it. He's heard the stories. He's heard the stories of the people who trusted in God's power and steadfast love, and they experienced it. That he is a God of power, that he is a God of steadfast love. He knows because God said it, and people experienced it and shared that story. He's read of those who came before. He read about God's power in the life of Abraham. He read about God's power in the life of Joseph. He read about God's power in the life of Moses. He read about God's love as God met with Moses as a friend face to face. Not only did God say this about himself, but then God carried out who he was. And David says, the power for God to save to be a rock, to be a fortress, he has the power. He alone holds that power. And he will exercise that power with steadfast love. You know, I'm very unfamiliar with the context of church life in Florida. But many of those individuals that I've worked with have spent time within churches. That God may have been a God of power, but it was unclear whether he was a God of steadfast love. And David could look back and see the stories of the way that God worked in people's lives. But you and I get to look back and see the story of God become man. One of Jesus' closest friends puts it this way. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, he says, In this, 
is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That single line contains the power and the steadfast love of God because what God could do is that he could love us and he could do what was necessary, expressing the power to invite us into the safest place through Jesus. He could pay the penalty for our sins and set them aside that we could enter into that safest place. He concludes with this statement in verse 12, For you will render to a man according to his work. For those who are united with Christ, this is a phrase of great hope. Because he has called us into the work of faith, of trusting in him at all times, of waiting on him, waiting on him to act. And the promise is that as you wait, that the moment will come where what we read in Colossians will take place, that we will be with him, that you will receive the reward of seeing Jesus the man who loved you and died for you, and you will see him face to face and experience the fullness of the glory that has been promised to you. That you will receive. He is capable of expressing his power and steadfast love to the final moment that even traverses death. The same is true for those who would not trust the Lord. That he is able to render according to those who would seek, to use a phrase from Tim Keller, their own self-salvation projects. That there is no salvation to be found apart from faith in Christ and works of faith, there is no salvation to be found if we seek to save ourselves, if we seek the roads of power and money, those pathways end in death and separation from the Lord. And so the place of refuge is a place that we are invited into through Christ and through his work that we would receive the glory of seeing him face to face. This is where David has taken us. That when we are under attack, that those who are united to Christ would see the signposts, the pathway to the refuge of preaching the gospel to ourselves, of exercising faith by waiting for the Lord's salvation, pouring out our hearts to God, and not giving way to saving ourselves through power, money, relationships with powerful people. The reality is that our hope is sure Because the power belongs to the Lord alone. He will exercise that power in love toward his people. And we will not be put to shame. Even though it may look like nonsense in the meantime, as we wait on the Lord, as we don't seek to save ourselves, the day of vindication is coming when God will be our full glory And we will experience the full reward of faith in him.
Father, as we take the hope of refuge that has been promised to us in Christ, I pray that you would give us faith to trust his work, to trust what we confess to be true. Father, I pray that you would bring the gospel word and the gospel hope to mind, that we would remind ourselves of these things. I thank you that you are our strong protector. Amen.